I have loved this series. Hopefully you've loved it. Um, we've been talking about heroes and this idea that the heroes of the scriptures, the people we talk about here that are, are in the word of God that we know about, that these heroes, they are more like us than maybe we think. And, and uh, if you go to church and you know maybe you grew up in church and you saw little cutouts of Samson and he was on a flannel graph, I'll, I'll date some of you. And he was hung up there on a flannel graph and he was yoked and had long hair and you know it was basically uh, Schwarzenegger Conan era Schwarzenegger, he's up there, and you're like, that's the picture you have of, uh, of, of these heroes, and, you know, some of them, you know, Moses, he's got this staff, and, you know, it's almost like a, you shall not pass, but it's the Red Sea, and it's, you shall pass, and he opens it, and, you know, that you have this visual of them as these individuals that are maybe unattainable, unapproachable, yet we have this passage of scripture in the book of James. James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother biological of Jesus, writes this incredible statement towards the end of his letter to the church. He's writing to, to this church that has exploded of followers of now Jesus who have this history of knowing these stories that they've grown up on and these individuals who have maybe been elevated beyond human status to hero status. And he brings up one of them, one of the most famous ones, Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man just like us. And that's an incredible statement. Because we know that Elijah prayed and fire came down. We know Elijah prayed and no rain. Elijah prayed again, rain. Best superpower ever. Elijah is storm, right? He's got powers when he prays. If there were little Jewish underroos, they'd be having Elijah on them when they were growing up. Like that's who they, they, and for him to say Elijah was a man just like us is an insane, crazy, ridiculous statement, except it's true. And so these men and women that have heroes throughout the scripture, we have this weird pressure of how do we identify with them? How do we learn from their stories? How do we figure out how we fit in God's story moving forward? And, and I've joked the whole way through that we just don't know how to define a hero. That's the problem because is a hero who does something incredible in a moment or is a hero a sandwich? Is a hero someone that says hashtag, you know, whatever. And, and we're like, oh, this hero, they, they stood up for their beliefs. They hashtag something. Is that heroic? Is it heroic if I open a door? It might be heroic if I open a door for someone. What's heroic? So since we don't know what that is, it's been challenging to walk through these stories. And so we're going to land today, and, and we're going to wrap the series. We're going to move another direction starting next week. I'm excited for that. I'll, I'll maybe give you commercial at the end, depending on how I do. But uh, we're talking about this idea that it's oftentimes one of the reasons we can't connect with these heroes of the scriptures is we don't feel qualified to be considered a hero. We don't even feel qualified to just do the normal things that God asks us to do. God, why would you choose me? I know me. And if you know me, there's no way you'd pick me to do any of the things that would represent you here on earth. And so this tension of do we or do we not feel qualified? I remember the first time I was really concerned that I wasn't qualified for the job God gave me. It was my first ministry job. It was the second job that offered to have me come and work for them for free, which means it was my second ministry job. And I was in Everett, Washington. You guys didn't know I'd spend a little extra time in this, this side of the coast, right? I was in Everett, Washington. It was like 2001, 2002. And uh, I went to a church in Everett, Washington that had basically shut down, but there were a few people that had hung around. 
And they were just getting together and kind of still being together. There's maybe 18 to 20 people. They were all 80 plus. And this new pastor came and uh, he uh, was probably in his late 30s or so, maybe a little bit. He had a, he had a teenage kids. And uh, he called and said, hey, would you consider coming and, and, and being our youth pastor? And I was like, yeah, how many kids do you have? And he goes, well, I have three. I was like, okay. And how many are in the church? I was like, oh, we don't have any kids. And I was like, okay, so you know I don't know anybody in Everett, Washington, but let me come check this out. And through a series of prayer and, you know, God's sense of humor, Christine and I at about 22 years old, we go to Everett, Washington, to this little church restart situation to start a youth group. There's three kids in the whole church and they're all the pastor's kids. And we're gonna start a youth group. I get a job, a day job at a place called uh, Hollywood Video. For you uh, millennials, you have to Google that. That's a business that doesn't exist anymore. It was crazy. We had these things called cassettes, VHSs, and, and we would lend them to you for like $4. And if you brought them back, not rewound, you have to Google that too. You used to have to rewind things, like, like actually rewind them. And then, and then we would charge you like another $4. And then if you lost them, we'd charge you like $80, even though you could go to Walmart and buy them for $10. So that business went away. It's not a thing anymore. <laughs> but I was working at Hollywood Video. So I used a lot of video illustrations in my early youth ministry days because that's what I had access to. <laughs> but we're trying to start a youth group. And I'm at this church and I'm looking around and I'm like, so we got three kids. They've just moved to town, so they don't know anybody. They're all the pastor's kids. And I'm supposed to start a youth group. How am I going to do that? Like, am I going to go door to door and be like, hey, do you got any teenagers? <laughs> Can they play with me? Right? I'm 22. How am I going to do that? There's no place to start. So I'm sitting out in front of the church, just thinking about the bad decisions in my life that have led to this moment. And I realize that we're like on a corner of an intersection and around the corner, a few blocks down is a high school. And so twice a day, neighborhood kids walk past the building to get to school, like eight something in the morning, like 2.30 in the afternoon. So I start thinking, how am I gonna meet some of these kids? What's the least creepy way that a 22 year old can go up to a random high schooler and be like, hey, wanna be my friend? So I'm, I'm struggling, like a month goes by, I get nothing, right? Finally, I buy a used basketball hoop and I decide here's gonna be my strategy because I've never felt more, less qualified, right? I'm gonna just use the only thing I got. I'm semi a jock at this point still. So I roll this hoop out and this is my plan. I'm just gonna roll it right onto the sidewalk so it's in the way. And then twice a day, I'm gonna go out there and shoot baskets. And anyone who looks coordinated, I'm just gonna throw a ball at them. And if they catch it and make a shot, I'm gonna introduce myself telling you this is how I started a youth group <laughs> for two months I did this and I just start meeting kids and a couple kids would come by and I was just you know no friends 22 year old guy playing basketball with random high schoolers that come by and I start telling them hey we're gonna start a youth group here da, 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 da. have you met you know the couple three kids that we know they didn't know them because nobody knew them and and I gotta tell you in three months we launched and on the first day we had 24 students show up it was awesome I took that down to six students in about a month and a half, and then we built it up to like 50-something students. It was awesome. But here's the thing. I didn't feel qualified. 
I didn't have any skill. I was like, I'm, I don't have anything to offer to these people. What can I do? And God took the little thing that I could think of that I could do and used it. And I got to tell you, the first kid that caught a ball and made a shot ended up going to Bible college and becoming a pastor. Just saying. God did a crazy thing in that kid's life. And, and I don't take credit for that. I just happened to chuck him a ball. Here's the thing. We all have dreams and we struggle when we feel like we can't do them. And dreams die when we think that we can't do it. Dreams die when we don't think we can do them. It happens all the time. God gives you a dream and you start thinking, oh, that would be awesome. And then you start thinking, well, here's all the things, the reasons I'm not qualified to do that dream. And as we start thinking we can't do them or we won't be able to do them, we stop believing that it's possible for them to do them. And then those dreams die. I, book by Wayne Cadero called Dream Releaser starts with a story of him just standing in a cemetery thinking about all the dreams that were buried there, all the books that didn't get written, songs that didn't get sung, all of the ideas that never came to fruition, all of the conversations that never happened, and he was just struck by the fact that how many of us take our dreams with us into the grave, and dreams die because we don't believe that we can do them, even God-sized dreams do that. And the key ingredient becomes this question that we ask, did God really say we could do that? Did God really call us to that? Did God want us to do that? And as we wrestle with that question of faith, it really is a faith question. My favorite definition of faith, I believe it was Andy Stanley who said it this way, but he said, faith is believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. That a working definition of faith is simply believing that God is who he says he is. When he says, I'm your father. When he says, I have power and authority. That God is who he says he is. When he says, I have plans for you to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That he is who he says he is. And then ultimately, not just that he is who he says he is, but he'll actually do what he says he will do. That's a working definition of faith. And dreams die because we don't have faith. And Hebrews says, uh, uh, the faith chapter of Hebrews, the author, chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that he exists, he is who he says he is, and that he does what he says he's going to do. And without faith, you and God can't have a great relationship. If you don't believe that he is who he says he is and that'll do what he says he's gonna do, that you will not have a great relationship with God, according to the author of Hebrews. And this chapter 11 of Hebrews, the great faith chapter, God reveals pictures of all of these different heroes of the faith. And says, these are all people and individuals that had faith. And all throughout the chapter, there's so many heroes. Some of the heroes we covered in this series are in there. And as you get towards the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it's like the author is worn out. He's been telling us about all of these heroes of the faith and finally just drops this commentary. He goes, so what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. He's like, listen, we could go to church every week and I still wouldn't be able to get you into your head all of these heroes of the faith. I don't have time to tell you about every single one of them, but let me tell you some truths about them. Who, verse 33, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. And listen to this, and whose weakness was turned to strength. And I wanna talk about weakness becoming strength a little bit today. 
Because when we feel like we're not qualified, we're not capable, we don't have what it takes, there's a kryptonite in there. There's a weakness that God wants to take and turn it into strength. Weakness becoming strength. They become powerful. They become qualified. They began from a position of weakness, but it was turned into strength. Who did that work? Did they do that work? No, God did that work. They were men and women just like us. Yet God did something, took them in their place of weakness and did that work. So I wanna talk with you today about an individual from scripture. And I don't know how much of the story, I didn't get all the way through his story in first service because it's just so good. And uh, so I gotta just be honest with you. Um, you're gonna have some homework. You're gonna have to read the story on your own. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, if you're making a salad and I got this big hunk of lettuce and that's the whole story of his life and I just smash it and I try to give you the good parts. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that, but it's all good parts. And so the whole salad's good. You should go in and eat it and check it out and make sure, um, even though I paraphrase some of this so that we can get through it in, in one day, uh, that you should go back and consume the salad. It'd be good for you, it would nourish you. And I'm gonna talk about Gideon today. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Judges uh, chapter six. And some of you are familiar with the story of Gideon. Some of you know parts of the story of Gideon. And some of you think that, you know, Gideon is a character on, what is NCIS or something like that. And so, uh, and so <laughs> was I right? Did I nail it? That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I don't even watch that show. <laughs> And so we have this story of Gideon and it's nestled in the book of Judges around, it starts about uh, on Judges chapter six. And as you're getting there, I gotta give you a little historical context of what's going on so that you understand the nature of his story and his experience. In the book of Judges, there's this cycle that keeps happening and it's this incredible cycle. Some scholars have called it a cycle of sin, um, but it's this cycle that keeps happening. And basically the people of God have finally got to the place of God. They're in the promised land and they're living there. And God has said, I will take, care of you. He gives them the promise. They're living under the promise of God, but they got to keep up their end of the bargain in order to keep experiencing the provision of God. That was a lot of peace so that you would remember it. The people of God are in the place of God. They want to live under the promise of God and experience the provision of God. That's pretty good. So listen, he says, this is how this is going to work. Here's my covenant, my promise, my relationship with you. You keep me first honor my laws, take care of me, take care of your relationship with me so that you remain a specific people with a, uh, a relationship with me. You do that and my arms will protect you in your land. I'll take care of you. You will have all the things you need and I will keep your enemies at bay and you will prosper in the land. You don't do that. You intermingle your heart with other gods, with the gods of these people who live in these communities around you, and you start giving your heart away to other things, then the promise that I've given you, you broke that covenant with me, so the protection won't be there anymore. And if the protection's not there, these guys are wicked, and they're gonna come after you. So the book of Judges is a series of stories about the people of God violating the promise of God, losing the protection of God crying out to God again, and God sends to them someone to redeem and restore them, bring them back into right relationship with them. Now, this is a little bit awkward because when I think of a judge, I think of someone like in a black gown, right? Probably nothing underneath, and a gavel, right? Going, order in the court. I hold myself in contempt, something like that. That's what I see when I see a judge. That's not the story with the book of Judges. It's not that kind of judge. When God raises up a judge, he's literally re raising up a hero. 
He's saying, I'm going to choose a hero to come and fight on my behalf, an ambassador, someone for, for me that I'm going to raise up, right? Some of those heroes even seem to have superpowers. One of them, he hulks out as long as he doesn't cut his hair. He like rips apart lions. He rips apart a donkey, takes the bone of it, just slaughters people, right? He's like the Hulk, Right, we already talked about Elijah and that powers, right? But 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 you know, one of them, she she Deborah, the just the chapter before, she's wise and she's cunning and and she's able to kind of lure the enemy of God in and you know eventually tent spike through the head. It's crazy, it's good stories. There's crazy powerful things going on here, and God continues to raise up these judges. And so we're going to meet a judge in, in the book of uh, Judges in chapter 6 who we're going to meet him kind of before he's powerful at all. We're going to get the before and after as he realizes the access to power that he has. And his name is Gideon. And what's happening in Gideon's time after Deborah has gone, the uh, people of God are beginning to give their heart to another idol, another God, lowercase g, and it's a God by the name of Baal or Baal. I usually say Baal, but it could go either way. And Baal or Baal shows up lots of times in the scriptures and in the Bible. He's a popular uh, little deity that they tend to worship. And the reason is Baal was the God of fertility. So worshiping him was fun. There was a lot of partying and, and extracurriculars that were involved in Baal worship. And so he would pop up from time to time. Seasons of life would go by and the Israelites would see these other cultures and the way they're celebrating and worshiping, they're like, that kind of looks like fun. And just like most sin, it is fun for about a minute. And suddenly the consequence of that sin kind of comes in. And because they've begun to give their heart to Baal and they're not serving God anymore, God's protection is gone. And this other group of people are there and they're called the Midianites. You're going to run into a bunch of ites today. There's going to be Midianites, Amorites, just, I don't know, other ites. And so there's going to be some ites. But you've got to remember the Midianites. And the Midianites are pretty significant because the Midianites, they kind of had the market cornered on a specific type of warfare. The way that they fought was they used a camel cavalry. They fought on camelback. Now, this was new fighting for the Israelites. They didn't fight this way. And so the, the, the Midianites, they had about 135,000 in their army, and they were loaded with weapons and camels. And their move, they're mean. They're like, their move was they would just wait and let you work all year and get your crops all ready. And as soon as your crops were up, they would just come in and wipe them out so that you would go hungry. And they take everything and then then and wipe them. It's like, remember the ants and the grasshoppers parable? And the ants work all hard and hard and hard, and the grasshoppers come in and just take everything and run. That's the Midianite strategy. They're like pirates, but there's 132,000 of them. And they come in and they oppress the Israelites. And so we pick up in chapter six of Judges and it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. It's not been just a minute. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. See, they keep getting raided by these camel uh, riders who are powerful and tall and authority. And so they go into the mountains and they sleep in caves because you can't ride camels up the side of the mountain into the caves. So they've given up their cropland and they've given up their good land that they're supposed to be in and they're living in caves in the mountains and strongholds. Verse three, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites 
Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. They didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkey. They came with their livestock and their tents like a swarm of locusts. And it was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. I don't know why it took seven years to cry out for help, but sometimes we got to learn things the hard way and things don't go well. And we go, well, I'll just try again. And things don't go well. And we go, well, I'll try a different way. And we, things don't go well. And we'll say, I'll just move in the cave and things don't go well. And finally we go, God, are you trying to teach me something? And he's like, yeah, thanks for catching on. And so that's what happens. <laughs> it says, verse seven, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you haven't listened to me. He says, I told you how this was going to work. You had access to my protection and you had access to my provision, but you lusted after something else that you thought you were getting cheated somehow, even though I was giving you everything you could possibly need. So you left me because that wasn't enough. And now that you've left me, there's distance between us and I can't protect you this way. You haven't listened. Verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak. And I'm going to say Oprah, but that's not how you say it, but that's what I see. So the oak in Oprah, that's a city, not a person that belonged to Joash the Abarazite. Good luck where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I love this because verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord came. And as you study this throughout scripture, many uh, great theologians and, and, uh, and Bible scholars will say, when you see the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus in the Old Testament that they didn't have a frame of reference for how to write who he is because he hasn't been incarnated and come as a baby yet and lived as a man. But God, it's his presence in a person. And so that's Jesus. And so, so the most theologians believe whenever you see that angel of the Lord, if there's just an angel and a messenger, that's different. But when it's the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. And so Jesus is essentially hanging out under an oak tree in the story. You wonder what he was doing in the Old Testament. Well, he was chilling in the shade. He was there. And at this oak tree, it was in a town called Oprah, and that's where Gideon was. Now listen to what Gideon, we meet Gideon in a pretty precarious position because he's trying to get some food. He's threshing wheat, but remember, every single time they make some progress, the enemy comes and snatches the progress away. Ever felt like that before? I'm just making some progress. And so because he can't make progress, he's getting frustrated and he's trying to do something that's actually pretty insane. It's embarrassing. He would be humiliated that this is kind of the way the story went because he's trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. Now, you could just miss this nuance of the story, but you can't thresh wheat in a wine press. It doesn't work. You see, a wine press looks like this. This is an excavated wine press. It's in Israel today. A wine press is a hole in the ground where they throw grapes in and then I Love Lucy jumps on them and stomps them and then you get wine. Not a little amount of wine. They go big, all right, or they go home. This is many, many kegs. They 
build these big holes and they drop the grapes in and they smash them and then they, the juice goes down and then they get the wine at the bottom. And that's what a wine press is built for. It's a hole in the ground, but that's not how you thresh wheat. You thresh wheat in an environment like this on top of the ground. And here's why, because wheat in its natural form, it has like a shell on it, a husk, it's called chaff and it's hard. And so they, with a sickle or whatever, chop the wheat and they put it on top and then they stand on, they smash it with their animals because it cracks the husk. And then they take a pitchfork and they jam the pitchfork into this cracked uh, husk of wheat and they pitch it into the air. And the air catches all of the chaff, the light stuff, the, the stuff that isn't good and for consumption and blows it away, but the wheat is heavy and it falls to the ground and they have good things to use from there. But go back to the other picture. It's not easy to do that in a hole. First of all, you can't get your animals in there. So you're doing the job of the animals stomping on it, right? But you also don't have wind. And so you've got your pitchfork, but you probably can't even pitch it out of there. So the picture we have of Gideon, he's down in a hole trying to get wheat out of a wine press, and he's got to be taking it in his hands and throwing it up. And, and he's trying to get some wheat because he's hungry because the enemy, every time he makes progress, comes and snatches it away, so he's hiding. It's not a position of authority or power at all. It's a position of weakness and humiliation. He's been dominated on by the enemy to where he's trying to make bread in a wine press. It's ridiculous. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus, gets up from the tree and walks over to him where he can see him and appears to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The irony of this statement's incredible because how can he be a mighty warrior? He's in a hole. He's not even an effective baker, let alone a mighty warrior. And he says, the angel of the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you. The Lord hasn't been with them for seven years. For seven years, they've been getting raided and demolished and their food is gone and they're emaciated and they're afraid all of the time. And Gideon's in a hole and he's throwing up this stuff and blowing, trying to get enough grain to feed himself and maybe his family. And he's frustrated. And so his answer is beautiful because we answer the same way when we're frustrated. Verse 13, he says, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And we ask the same question when things aren't going well and God shows up and says, I'm with you. And you're like, if you're with me, why is everything awful right now? And then he says, where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. And he says, basically, if the Lord is with us, where are all the miracles? Where are all the miracles if the Lord is with us? And the church says that today, and you say that today. And we all ask those questions when God shows up and says, I'm with you, you mighty warrior, you mighty warrior of valor. I'm with you, and you can do something amazing. And you look out on the landscape, and you say, I see no evidence of that at all. To which Jesus, because he is uh, Jesus, turns to him, verse 14, and says, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Gideon's in a hole trying to make wheat from a wine press. And he says, the Lord is with you. And he says, how can the Lord be with me? I don't see any miracles. And he goes, just use your strength and go save Israel. I can imagine the chagrin and the frustration on his 
face, he's been complimented, called a mighty warrior, but he's probably feeling a little offended because I don't feel like a mighty warrior. I'm in the hole right now. And sometimes when you don't feel like a mighty warrior, someone telling you you're awesome when you don't feel awesome is tough to take, especially when they say, get up and use the strength you have and go do the thing God's called you to do. And you're like, are you kidding me? I don't have strength at all. He says, go and do it. Am I not sending you? Verse 15, but Lord, Gideon says, how can I save Israel? Then he goes into his excuse mode. He goes, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. He says, I'm unqualified for that job that you just said, that's a great job. And there's probably a mighty man of valor around here somewhere. I know that's true traditional move when things are tough, but you should pick one that actually is a mighty man of valor because I'm trying to bake bread in a wine press and it's not going well. And he says, I'm the least in my family. And the Lord says, well, I'll be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. And here's the answer to the question that he said, where are you and where are the miracles? It's that the promise of God is always the presence of God. He says, I'll be with you. So go in your own strength. And this is really hard because a lot of times we feel like the, the weakness that we have is our own strength. I, can't, I would do it, God, if I had more strength, if I had more skills. I'm not strong enough. If I, had more, if I had more ability, if I had more wealth, if I had more influence, if I had more intelligence, if I had more talent, if I had any of those things, more of that, then I would go and do the thing you called me to do. And God says, no, I want you to go and do it in your strength and I'll just be with you. And Gideon's challenged because he doesn't feel qualified and he doesn't feel like he should be doing anything in his strength except hiding in a hole trying to make some bread. And God says, I'll be with you. Judges chapter six, verse 17, and Gideon replied, if, I now, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. And this is where the wheels come off for me because I cried and tried and tried to understand Gideon's response here, but I don't understand. He's talking to Jesus, at least the angel of the Lord. He sees him, he's hearing his voice audibly based on the text. And he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. And I'm not sure what he means other than he's been in a wine press for a while and I don't know if there was leftover residue and he's been in there taking care of it. You had to clean it out so it would be dry enough. And so maybe that's what happened. I'm just speculating that maybe that's, he's afraid he's hallucinating. I'm not sure because he's hearing a voice and seeing a person and he says, just give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. I don't know if Jesus showed up in the flesh and said, go do the thing I told you to do. You're strong enough and I'll be with you if we'd believe him. Gideon doesn't. And so he, because he doesn't, he has a little test. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. But the first test is pretty simple. The first test is I going to get an altar ready for you and he gets a offering and puts it on the altar and the man of God who we believe is Jesus touches it and <clears throat> fire comes up to which point Gideon gets afraid because now he's like I'm seeing God and I'm going to die and he's like you're not going to die we've been having this conversation all day and if you were going to die for seeing me it would have happened right away so you're okay but what I need you to do is go home because in your house is where the altar is that everybody comes to and in your backyard is the tower the Asherah pole and the altar to bail. And so the first job that you have is to go clean up your own backyard. See, you're qualified for that. 
So Gideon's willing to do it, but he's afraid. And so he says, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it at night. And so he leads a night raid into his own house, which is hilarious. And so he gets 10 of his buddies and they storm his own house at night and they knock over the altar and they build a, uh, they cut down the pole and they use the wood to build an altar for God and they burn it up and consume it. He obeys God, but God lets him still kind of do a covert mission instead of an overt mission because he's dealing with the thing that needs to get dealt with. And sometimes we want everyone's stuff to be out in front of everyone all the time when it gets dealt with. And sometimes they just need some privacy to deal with the stuff that's in their house. And that's okay. And so he does that and uh, deals with it. The morning comes and the neighborhood shows up because they like the kind of worship that happens where the Baal worship is and the fertility goddess. So they show up in the morning for that worship, but that altar is not there anymore. They're frustrated, so they want to kill somebody. And they're like, who did this? And there's no way you're keeping a secret once 10 people know. So eventually someone says, well, Gideon led the raid. And they're like, well, we're going to kill Gideon. And Gideon's dad like comes online and has this epiphany. It's a great moment in the scripture. You should read the story. And he's like, if Baal doesn't need you to defend him, if Baal mad at Gideon, Baal will kill Gideon. If Gideon doesn't die, then Baal has no power over him. And they're like, well, that's hard to argue with that logic, so we'll leave Gideon alone. Afterwards, Gideon is a little bit more encouraged now, and, and uh, having been afraid up until that point, he now uh, does what the Lord tells him to do. And then if you get all the way to verse 33, it says that now all the Midianites and Malachites and other Eastern people joined the forces together and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Now that's important because earlier on we found out that the way that they oppressed the Israelites is they would come and they would camp in the middle of their crops and they would just ruin them. And so after this moment happens, in come these invading forces and they're camped in the middle of the valley of where all the food and provision is that God's provided for his people. And now the pressure is on. And verse 34 says something incredible. It says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning the Aberazites, good luck, the Aberazites, to follow him. He, people come to him. But I want you to catch this, and if you're an underliner, it's something you should underline in your scripture because it says, then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And if you read some of the different translations and some of the text, it's really powerful. I saw one pastor actually said it was like he wore him like a glove, which I thought was a cool analogy. But the reality is it just says that basically like, a, like it encloaked, enveloped, it came over him. It covered him from head to toe. It literally uh, 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 was all around him and about him. You see, his concern was I'm the least and I don't have a lot of influence. And so this was a big moment because the pressure was on and he needed influence, so God provided the influence. He provided the power. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he does one simple thing. He blows a trumpet. Now, I don't know how loud that trumpet blow was, but with the Spirit of the Lord blows into the trumpet, I'm assuming it was pretty loud and thunderous because what happened is about 32,000 people rallied. Now, certainly they saw the enemy troops come into their valley and attacking their food, and they're probably looking for what are we going to do now, and this trumpet call inspired them because it was Holy Spirit empowered. And so they show up, and there's 32,000 of them, and, and, and I don't know about you, but I can't rally 32,000 people very easily, and so you would think that this would now inspire confidence in Gideon that would be beyond anything that you would otherwise imagine, because if I'm the least of these from a weak clan, but now there's 32,000 of us, now I'm powerful. Except for, do you remember, there was 135,000 
of the other enemy army. And so 32,000 in the face of 135,000 in a sword fight is probably a big deal. Maybe with machine guns or something like that, it's not as big a deal, but with swords one-on-one, this is a big deal. They're grossly, grossly underpowered. But let me start by just saying the presence of God is what gave access to the power of God because God promised to be there when it was time to show up and he was walking with God. He had cleaned, come on now, his own backyard out. The power of God was available to him and the presence of God was there. And so 32,000 people show up and that's not enough for Gideon to feel confident that God's really doing something. He's got to check again. And I love Gideon. And so it's funny, some of the stories, I'll, I'll, you know, if you're in chapter six around the bottom, verse 36 or so, you can just read it. But the story that many of you know from Gideon, he takes the fleece, right? He takes a wool fleece and he says, I just got to make sure, I know you consume this altar by fire and the Holy Spirit's come upon me. I blew a trumpet and 32,000 people showed up. But God, I'm not really sure if you want me to actually lead this thing. And so since I'm not really sure, I'm going to take it a wool fleece and I'm going to put it outside. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to go to bed. And if in the morning the fleece is dry, but everything around it is wet from the dew, I'll take that as a sign that you are with me and I'll go ahead and do this. And he does it and it works. And he goes out there and he goes, yeah, but I'm not a scientist. And since I'm not a scientist, that might just be the way it always happens. I'm not sure if that's normal or not normal. So if you'll allow me, God, a little indulgence, one more time I want to do this, but this time let's flip it and I'll put the fleece out and I want the fleece to be wet and I want everything else around it to be dry. And he gets up in the morning and everything's dry and he wrings out the fleece and water pours out of it. And he goes, okay, God, you're with us. So they leads his army to uh, a place called... uh, 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 the spring of Herod. Uh, it's a place where there's water and they begin to uh, march and Gideon's having this pressure because he sees that now he's got 32,000 men, but on the side of the hill, there's about 135,000. And God says to him, Gideon, you have a numbers problem. And he's like, thanks for noticing. And he goes, yeah, you have too many guys. Like, wait, What? Now, I had the amazing privilege last year to go to this place, the, the, the place where they drank from the spring in the spring of Herod. And so I filmed this little short video. It's like 30 seconds, and I'll let you see what it actually looks like there today. So I was looking forward to that time now, and here I am drinking from that stream because that's awesome because how can you not drink from it? Even if I, I didn't get sick, so it worked out. But uh, <laughs> it was risky, but I took a little risk there and wetted my lips. And so the story goes, and you can read it. I won't take us through all the text because of time, but in Judges chapter 7, like I explained in the video, God says you've got too many guys, and the problem is with 32,000, you might think that you did this and I didn't do this, so we're going to narrow it down. So he says go ahead and tell everyone who's afraid they can leave except you because that's the burden of leadership. Sometimes when you're in charge, you can't be the one who's afraid and quits and taps out. And sometimes we do that and it's not God's direction for us to do that. And that's a whole nother story. So we won't talk about that right now, except for Gideon doesn't get to quit. And he just says, listen, you see the 135,000 up there? We're gonna go fight them in the morning. But if you're scared to do it, you can leave. And 22,000 people leave. Now, Taking it down to 10,000, I'm sure he thought, wow, God, you're going to really have to do a miracle. And God says, I am going to have to do a miracle because not enough people left. <laughs> and so then you have the story of them drinking from the water. And I'm not exactly sure why, except for that it just worked out mathematically. And there's something about 300, this is Sparta, that can take anybody. And so God narrows it down to 300 by saying the people who drink and just plunge their head in the water can go. And the people who scoop it up to their mouth can stay. And he's down to 300 men. And 
He's like, I'm not sure how this is gonna work. And if you read through the story, there's this incredible picture. He's, God says, if you're still afraid, and he's like, why wouldn't I still be afraid? You just sent 31,700 of my people out of here and I'm down to 300. Why wouldn't I still be afraid? And he goes, well, if you're still afraid, just walk among the camp and listen to your people talk and I'll encourage you. And he goes, okay, I am still afraid, so I'll take that offer. He's walking among the camp and as he's walking among the camp, he overhears one of his soldiers, one of the 300 or left, and he's telling a story to one of his friends. He's like, I had a dream last night. And she's like, well, what's the dream that you had? And I said, well, this is a cool dream. And there's this big loaf of bread and it was rolling. And it's like, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and it rolled up the hill and it rolled into the Midianite army and it smashed their tent and they all died and the guy goes well that's awesome because I know a thing about Gideon he makes bread and Gideon overhears it and his heart is filled with encouragement and it's like this is awesome God is with us and he's speaking through people who don't even know I'm listening to them and it's encouraging me and so he says in the morning God gives him a plan and he goes you're not even going to need swords you're going to bring jars because you have empty jars because the wine press is empty because you've been trying to bake bread in there and you can't get grapes anyway because they keep stomping them and so you're going to take these jars and you're going to put the trumpets in the jars and you're going to hike up there with a with a torch and you're gonna take a torch, a jar, and a trumpet, and you're gonna break into three small groups, and you're gonna take the east, the west, and you're gonna come around. These guys are gonna come up through the middle, and here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna march up there, and when you get up there, you're gonna break the jars. And then you're gonna get the trumpets out, and you're gonna blow them. It's gonna be like, and then you're gonna light the torches. And I'm gonna give you the victory, and God does give them the victory. And the enemy turns on itself and is panicked and is afraid and they flee and they kill each other and Gideon follows them and pursues them and wipes them out and he chases them down and finishes them off. And the reality is Gideon never had to become a mighty actual warrior. He just had to trust God with what he already had, an empty jar, a horn, and some torches. And so we come kind of to the conclusion of our story, and, and uh, it's difficult because I want you to hear some very simple truths, and one of them, maybe you've heard this before, but you need to know that it's true, that God always qualifies who he calls. And you feel unqualified, and you don't feel like you have what it takes, yet you feel like God's called you, then God will do the qualification. So how do you deal with this tension when you feel unqualified? I'm going to give you three just very simple keys, and, and, uh, and then we're going to wrap it up here in just a moment. But when I feel unqualified from the story of Gideon, I want you to pull some simple truths away. And the first one is this. You have to believe and know your true identity. You see, Gideon was in the wine press trying to make bread, and Jesus came and said, here's your true identity. You're a mighty man of valor. And he's like, nah, I'm the least and he says, I don't have a lot of strength. And he goes, well, God, I'm going to use the strength you have. Go in your own strength. And here's the problem we run into is we listen to a lot of voices, but we don't listen to the creator's voice when it comes to who we really are. And there's another voice that's battling around in your head trying to give you an identity that's not your true identity. And God's saying, you're a mighty woman of valor. You're a mighty man of valor. There's nothing that's impossible for you when you believe. And you're saying, well, that's not true because... I believe all these other things about myself. So the first step to understanding that you are qualified is believing the true identity that you are who God designed you to be with intent, with purpose. That he wouldn't call you to something to which he hasn't qualified you for. Know your true identity. The second 
key when I feel unqualified. And I love this. Sometimes you've got to gather the troops. Sometimes you've got to gather the troops. And God was kind to Gideon. He said, blow the horn. I'll send the cavalry to you. I'll send support and family and I'll send a large group around you to give you confidence. And when that large group isn't enough to get you confidence, I'll slice it down to a small group for you. And I gotta tell you something, if you're not involved in community and doing life with other people, then you will struggle to feel qualified from time to time. You've gotta get around some people who can hear from God and speak life into you when you're not hearing so well. And Gideon had to walk down among his small group and just listen to the voice of God coming through somebody who didn't even know he was listening. And it inspired him and it encouraged him. And if you're not doing life in community and you're not being around other believers who are also hearing from God, if you haven't gathered the troops, it's gonna be hard to believe that you're qualified for anything. God will give you people. It's why Rooted is so important. It's why a life community is so important. It's why this experience of coming together on Sunday is so important. Being in community is critical for this to work. God did not send him alone. He said, go in your own strength, your power, your authority, and I'll send the troops with you. I'll bring you people. He didn't send him alone. He didn't send Gideon alone, and he won't send you alone. I'm just saying. It's not his move. It's never been his move. It's not how he does it. And the last thing when you're feeling unqualified that might help you break that open is you got to recognize you got to be who you are and you feel unqualified because you think you have to be someone else to be qualified simple as that if you feel unqualified it's because you're convinced there's another version of another person or another version of you that's the version that's qualified and you're not that person so you can't do that yet Gideon didn't have to become another person that's why I love the dream and the loaf of bread that's smashing the temple and, or the, the tent where everybody was at because God was like, that's you. Remember, wink, wink, when I met you, I came out from under the oak tree and I saw you down there trying to bake bread. I can use a loaf of bread to defeat an army. I can use you. Just be who you are. And you didn't ever see Gideon as some, some gifted swordsman, though we see him fighting a little bit later in the story. But he wasn't a, a mighty warrior the way that you might think a mighty warrior is. But he was a mighty warrior because when he trusted God and just did what he was designed for, the power and the presence of God went with him. And he was able to accomplish everything God called him to do. Don't try to fake it. Just be who you are. Don't feel like you don't have what you need. God used a small group, a bunch of wine jugs and some torches and some trumpets to wipe out an army. I don't have the resources. Just saying. God has this ability. He turns weaknesses into strength. That's the Hebrews passage that we started with. He turns weaknesses into strength. He says, all you got is an empty wine jug, a torch and a trumpet. Sweet, bring that. That's the thing I'll use. And you've heard me say this time and time again, and it's true, and I wish we would believe it and not just say it, but the reality is you plus Jesus is always enough to accomplish what God called you to do. It's you plus Jesus. His presence and his power brings the rest. And so you just have to have courage and faith and do the thing God called you to do and bring what you've got. And if you think I don't have enough, you're right, except for you do because Jesus brings all of the rest. And that's how it works. The end of Gideon's story spirals a little bit out of control and it's a little bit disappointing because he leaves 
kind of the legacy that he didn't want to leave. Uh, he leaves a, a legacy of kind of everyone bringing attention to him instead of bringing attention to God, and it spirals. And sometimes the most dangerous thing is once you've done the thing God's called you to do, that you don't continue to give the attention and the glory and the honor to God because God always wanted the battle to be about him showing up and demonstrating his faithfulness, and that is the secret sauce once you finally experience the provision and blessing of God is remember that it's still God who did it and he did it with you. So Gideon experiences this incredible empowerment of the Holy Spirit on the outside and Jesus comes and tells us that he's gonna leave for us a counselor, a Holy Spirit who's gonna come and meet us on the inside. And what's crazy is we actually have access to more power than Gideon had. Gideon wore that power for a moment. We live and embody that power. It dwells within us and that's incredible. And so when we feel powerless, God reminds us he is the power source and empowers us and reminds us is an important key because I'm going to have the, uh, uh, the ushers, my, my, my team come up and we're going to close with communion because I think that the thing that drives us away from believing that God can use us and qualify us is we forget some of the truth that we used to know. And we've heard the stories, but we haven't seen it recently. And when we haven't seen it recently, we forget. And so we tell God, well, if that's true and you're with us, then why aren't I not seeing everything? And he says, well, just go in the strength you have and keep doing it and I'll be with you. And so Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he takes juice and he takes bread and he says, as often as you do this, remember, this is a new covenant, a new promise that's being started in my blood. And the new covenant was that you aren't just going to have limited access to God, you're gonna have complete access to God. I'm going to create the bridge that gives you permission to get into the presence all the time. And so, my team over here is gonna go ahead and pass out uh, the juice and the bread. And I want you to hold that. And once you get the juice and bread, would you stand? And then here's what I wanna challenge you to do. As we begin to lift our voice in song, I want you to think about what are the dreams that God specifically called you to do that he wants to remind you that he'll be with you to accomplish those things. Hold on to those elements. We'll worship together, then we'll pray and we'll close. If you have them, you can stand and let's worship together. Jesus taught us that communion was about remembering. And this morning, my biggest challenge is just to remember who God really called me to be and who God really called you to be and that we can do all of the things that God called us to do and have the impact that God called us to impact to have if we just believe that and take the strength that we have and partner with him. And so... That's what I'm remembering. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you would remember that. And after I pray, you can take and eat this as just an outward sign of God. I remember what you accomplished so that I can do everything that you've called me to do and that you're the one that qualifies. So God, in this moment, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly grateful for your son paying the price for me so that I can be made whole and made new 
so that, God, uh, I wouldn't have to carry the weight of my sin and my guilt and my shame that you paid for it on the cross. And you want us to remember the new covenant that you set up that gives us access to you and access to forgiveness so that we can clean our own backyard and move into the destiny that you've called us to and that we could accomplish everything you've called us to do. And we're grateful for that. And so we say thank you and we worship you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.